Welcome back to the Scarlet Thread Society. As always, it's me, Paz. With me tonight is Jacob from Apocalypse Confidential. You want to introduce yourself, buddy? Yeah. Hey, uh, Paz. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm uh, Jacob. I am the editor-in-chief and publisher of Apocalypse Confidential. We are a literary magazine of in the past, we called ourselves a PSYOP sleaze rag. That was a, uh, a coinage from a past contributor of us. And I think that still holds up. We're interested in, you know, parapolitical, you know, paranormal, low lives and high strangeness. And our next special is the Bad Back Jack Thanksgiving Spectacular, all about JFK and all the goings on in the maintenance tunnels of power. And that's one I'm in particular really looking forward to. Uh, one of your editorial staff actually reached out to me asking if I'd like to try a submission for it. Obviously, no uh, promises were made, but I told them I'd try and get something in, see if you guys liked it. I think that's going to be an excellent issue. I think my first run-in with you guys was it must have been a Vietnam theme or a 70s theme. I seem to recall reading some very good uh, short stories, and they I was really taken with it. I'm a big fan of your publication, maybe one of your biggest fans. I don't know, man. If you could tell me just a little bit more about it, some of your past issues, what you really like doing about it, give me some more. Really shill this for me. Yeah, all right. Um, yeah, I will say not to – yeah, no, I started it in uh 2021 um for the first year it was just me and obviously the you know dozens of people who contributed to it um basically the name from it comes from apocalypse culture the famous uh essay collection that was collect collated by adam parfrey of uh feral house you know before the internet Really, you had to go to Feral House and other sort of fringe indie publishers for all the weird shit. And so the Apocalypse comes from that name, that title, and then Confidential comes from L.A. Confidential uh, by James Elroy. And, you know, all the that name itself comes from all, like, the weird, like, sort of scandal rags. There was one called Confidential, and then there's, like, this book series of, like, weird inside dirt on different cities. Like I have a old vintage copy of Washington confidential. Like there in the back, there's like an index of all the brothels to go to and stuff. Um, and so the sort of combining of like the sort of fringe noited out occult kind of stuff of the apocalypse side. And then the noir hard boiled sleaze of the confidential side that that combining is our bread and butter. And it is an absolutely delicious bread and butter. There's no doubt about <laughs> that. Gosh, in the initial description, you made a reference to high strangeness. And I have to ask, being the operation that I am, just how intentional is that? Do you have a background with Charles Fort, John Keel, all those fellows? I'll be honest, I haven't read any of the guys, but I listen to plenty of podcasts that talk about them and you know i'm familiar with like the mothman prophecies 
and like the works of uh, Charles Fort. And yeah, the low life and high strangeness thing, it's a riff on the sort of cyberpunk ethos of low lives and high technology, where it's like the intersection of people who are in precarious or criminal circumstances who are confronted by, you know, or like are involved in like high tech stuff. I mean, at this point, cyberpunk is such like a known quantity. Everyone knows what that is. So with low lives and high strangeness, essentially what we're doing is the intersection of criminality or precarity with like anomalous or conspiratorial or parapolitical or paranormal circumstances. Absolutely. And not that I could ever describe it better than you, the creator, but that is really just the perfect summation. Your brand is immaculate. The vibe is spot on with what you seem to be aiming for. And I guess I keep repeating myself, but I can't say enough good things about what you're doing, man. Well, thank you very much. So with all of that in mind, uh, last year, a mutual friend of ours, Mr. Elrad ASMR, suggested that we link up and do something for Halloween as I was talking about wanting to do a special on Halloween for Halloween. And your name. Oh, yeah, this has been immediately. In, yeah, this has been in the works for about a year. So I've got to say, uh, well, Tell me a little bit about your background then with film or your interest in films. You know, I kind of got this feeling conversation, but for the audience, what's your attraction to this sort of thing? Um, well, I got, I definitely got it from my mom. Like I, I mean, I always sort of grew up liking horror movies, um, just as like my genre of choice. And then, like, I think in, like, sixth or seventh grade, and, like, I would catch, like, parts of Halloween 4, which I know is sort of a favorite of both of ours because it's Dr. Loomis at his most Ahabian. Um, oh, dude, Halloween 4. You, we'll get to this later yeah, in the episode, but that's my favorite in the franchise by a mile. That, that's, a, that's a little teaser for the folks. Um, and... You know, I would, you know, I would probably catch like parts of four or five or whatever on like AMC Fear Fest back in the day. Um, but then in like sixth or seventh grade, like I think I watched Halloween for the first time. And then like, you know, my mom was telling me that she saw it in theaters like when she was in high school because it would have been like the perfect time for that. And like she was really into Halloween, like the franchise and like horror movies in general, like prom night terror train so aka anything with jamie lee curtis like she was seeing stuff like i spit on your grave like a lot of grindhouse stuff that would come out here to portland um and so it's always been you know it's it's kind of funny looking you know halloween for a lot of people is just kind of like a scary movie thing but for you know my household halloween halloween is a it's a family flick it's a family affair and for me, it was actually much the same. I came to this taste in almost exactly the same way. You know, growing up with my mother, she had a real knack, a real affection for horror movies as well, specifically the sort of uh, slashers, the blood and guts, the TNA films that she grew up with as a kid. And so every fall, we'd, as you say, have a fear fest. 
on in our house all October. And I had acquired a real taste for it that way myself, you know, catching snippets back in the day, it was all Halloween franchise, all Friday the 13th, all month. In recent years, AMC seems to have dialed it back to one, two weeks. But, you know, growing up, it was a sort of golden age for cable TV, too. So I got a real nice taste of all of that. And I personally developed a real taste for slashers. There's a lot of people that think maybe they're a little too formulaic, a little too schlocky. But I think they represent really the best of what horror has to offer. Oh, yeah, I absolutely agree that about Halloween. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It's for me, it's always been like slashers and then like Italian horror flicks. Um, cause like with a slasher, there it's kind of like the perfect collision of like commerce and art, I guess. Like with Halloween, you know, it's just, you know, they want to like make a, just make a, you know, a dead teenager, teen, teenager flick to make some money, but then you give full creative control to John Carpenter and you're going to get a masterpiece like Halloween. But then, so then with the other slashers, a lot of them are sort of cheesy and sleazy, which is sort of the, that's like a perfect quotient for them. And then it's like, you know, like you said, it's formulaic or some of the naysayers would say it's formulaic, but within those constraints, it allows for, I don't know, it allows for creativity to develop. Oftentimes it doesn't develop, but sometimes when it does, it does in a very uh, striking way. Yeah. And you know, for it to do so, I think we can both agree. It kind of takes that special touch of the directors and the producers really knowing and understanding just what they're doing. As you said, John Carpenter is an absolute favorite of mine. I'd be remiss not to mention the other master, that is Wes Craven, rest in peace. But Definitely. what he did with uh, Scream, with Nightmare on Elm Street, and with a million other works of his, you know, you can see that he very clearly understands how this operation is supposed to work. And then with such a thorough understanding of it, he was able to weave in his own themes and concepts. And, you know, I think too much is said about elevated horror. Horror is not something that needs to be elevated, but he did elevate it and not in the way that people often talk about when they talk about elevating horror. You know, Carpenter, Craven, these guys proved their mastery of the art by being transcendent without even needing to try to be. Yeah, absolutely. Well, with Halloween, you know, Carpenter, he just wanted to make a haunted house movie. And I've always found that a fascinating window into looking at it because obviously it launched this whole, you know, subgenre, the slasher. Obviously, there were like a few uh, movies beforehand that you could consider earlier slashers. Uh, but it's interesting looking at it as a haunted house movie. Because, you know, when he was making it, it's not like there were slashers beforehand that he was able to, like, you know, borrow from. So he was borrowing borrowing from, like, the real classics from, like, the 30s and 40s, like, you know, this dark, old dark house or whatever. And it's the way that he sort of transposes that, you know, isolated gothic Victorian mansion horror show 
to the suburbs of Illinois or Pasadena posing as Illinois is, uh, it's, yeah, it's fascinating. And, you know, I always kind of found that one of the most fascinating parts, too, especially the study and the commentary of what Carpenter stated he was trying to do that whole time and the way his product ended up being received. He obviously embraced the legacy of Halloween because it made him just absolute shit tons of money. But it seems that, to me, in reading what he said about it, he wasn't necessarily thrilled with the reception or the reputation it's gotten. And perhaps there's a connection there between what he was trying to do with it and what it ended up becoming and what it ended up spawning. Yeah, it's... uh... It's a, uh, you know, I guess the word of the night is fascinating, but it is, I'll do a different one. It is interesting how, you know, for him, it was just like a, a you know, it was just a working gig. Um, but then, yeah, it spawned this franchise of at this point, like 13 movies and then, you know, countless imitators and ripoffs and, uh, and yeah, for, you know, the nerds like us, you know, the Halloween franchise is this almost like sacred thing that, you know, we, you know, we stand at the altar at, but then for him, it's, you know, it's just another gig he did. And obviously it was a gig that he did with craftsmanship and care, but yeah. So I guess before we spend too much time, just really uh heaping more praise on him than we need to (laughs) we should maybe actually talk about the films the first thing i want to ask you is what was your favorite entry from the original all the way up to the stuff that i believe it's blumhouse is still doing now oh man i mean uh let's just let's just take out the original because everyone's gonna say the original one right um You'd certainly hope they would. Yeah, right. Uh, I don't know. I am going to, you know, I mean, I like all of them, you know, in that sort of like MCU kind of style fanboy way. But I am going to throw a curveball and say Halloween 5. Okay. Because, yeah, because it is... One and I mean, it's it's a uh, it's mainly a nostalgia one because it's the one that like I think I would see the most often, like on AMC when they were doing the Fear Fest stuff, and it's like it has like a weird sort of you know fairy tale vibe. It's uh, directed by a European, so it has a bit of like a Euro horror uh, thing. The mask, the mask doesn't bother me as much as it bothers some people, and it's definitely Doctor Loomis at his most un- unhinged. And I think there's it's a there's a charming quality to that. Um, I don't know if I believe that, but I'm just gonna I'm gonna play uh, devil's advocate or maybe uh, the shapes advocate on that one. That's very good. Yeah. Uh, I am going to follow a similar chain of thought to you, actually, in that I would easily call number four my favorite, obviously accepting the original. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's probably my that's probably my real answer. 
but you know, I, I gotta be a contrarian. <laughs> Naturally. Uh, you made a comment there about MCU vibes and fanboying and that leading you to make a case for five. And this just sort of occurs to me now. Spoiler, if you're a member of the audience that somehow has never seen these films. But think about that. That can be maybe a case to be made for the first post-credits plot twist scene. (laughs) It wasn't even necessarily uh, post-credits. But at the very, very end, when the man with the submachine gun breaks Michael Myers out of jail... And they end up looking at this blood-stained county holding facility, and everyone's left wondering, well, what comes next? Exactly. Yeah, and I mean, you have a kind of similar dynamic at the end of four when you have uh, uh, Jamie Lloyd holding up the scissors after stabbing her mom. So, yeah, those those two definitely they end on cliffhangers. Though, of course, every film in the series does. You almost have to with a horror film. How do you get the audience to the sequel that you've already written when the original releases, right? Of and course. that goes back to what you well, were saying it, about the commercialization. But Yeah. Although it is interesting because, you know, like like I was saying before, you know, when they were making Halloween, it's not like they were working within this genre template. Um so like the ending when, you know, they look down at the balcony from the balcony and see that uh, Michael Myers has disappeared. It's like that wasn't so much conceived as a cliffhanger, but rather the only way that you could end that movie, because the whole idea of the movie is that, you know, e- evil is this thing that just won't be killed and that, you know, the shape can be anywhere. And so obviously, you know, after, you know, a dozen sequels that's been changed into like the whole like motif of, you know, the killer just can't be escaped until the next movie for more, you know, box office money for the studio. But like at that time it was, it was just, uh, it was like the only way you can end it. I agree, and that's really what I think makes the ending of the first film, for me, possibly the most iconic scene in the entire franchise. That first time you see the movie, you think Loomis, who I believe to be the hero of these movies, shoot him off the balcony, look down, and then he's not there. Nothing, I think, in all of horror compares to that one scene the first time you see it, and it really sinks in. Oh my gosh, he's not there. Yeah, it's a moment of sort of genuine horror or terror or whatever. It's or a new a new undescribable third thing. Just realizing that, you know, the night he came home is just gonna be an endless, endless thing. And that, yeah, evil doesn't evil doesn't die. It just sort of shrugs off shit six shots and goes to the next house or something if you're lucky and actually on that note i'm going to take my own fanboy moment if i may be allowed to and pivot us here myself i made the reference that i believe dr loomis to be the hero of the series and for me he is the most compelling character he is the second most recurring character after 
the shape after Michael Myers. But I would just love to hear you talk a little bit about Dr. Loomis, if you would, and your perspective on him, his arc, his beats, his story beats, if you would, please. Yeah, of course. Yeah, Dr. Loomis is... It he's in you know, he's an interesting guy. He's a yeah, he's definitely a habby, and especially as the series goes on, because it's he's almost like driven to like the same kind of like not exact same madness as Michael, because I feel like, you know, there's a difference between evil and madness. It's not like Michael is insane, he's just evil. Um, but he's He's kind of driven, you know, to a sort of madness by his interactions with the shape, with Michael Myers, his patient. And I think it's interesting coming from the perspective of him being like a psychiatrist. So he's supposed to be this man of science and of, you know, reason. And I mean, depending on your perspective on psychiatry or whatever. But like, you know, he's supposed to be a a rational man of a rational world. And uh, but then throughout these repeated encounters with Michael Myers, he becomes closer in line with like the priest who he hitchhikes with in the fourth one, who's sort of ranting about like this evil coming to the world. And what's that iconic line that preacher drops on him? Uh, something like, are you a pilgrim or are you a seeker or something to that effect? And I remember that. Yeah, one. I think it's, are you hammers a me every time yeah. I watch it too. Yeah. And I love that moment because it just gives such like a scope to the franchise, especially that installment. Like I remember reading, reading somewhere about like sort of viewing Halloween four as like the slasher version of an epic film where like, you know, not epic in length, but like it's epic in scope where it truly is like this good and evil. And like, you have this whole, like it, it really is sort of like the, you know, the mon- monster trying to slay the princess and the warrior trying to slay the monster kind of thing. And I feel like that scene with the priest or the preacher or whatever is sort of pivotal to that reading because you do get a sense that it's almost like the stand by uh, Stephen King or something where, you know, Loomis versus Michael is just one part of like a wider struggle. Yes, sir. And I think that's exactly right. And I think that's exactly right because I share the opinion. I firmly believe that there's a extremely valid reading of these films as epics, as just that, as Loomis, he, he can be read as being on a hero's journey, which is my favorite interpretation, or as you said, as the sort of hero fan that guides the hero to their final confrontation. And, you know, you have all of these classic, literally timeless literary themes baked into this film, whether with intention or even by accident. I think that really says something about the creative storing, storytelling culture we find ourselves in, that you can so readily identify this and you can read these themes and they can appear in this genre that people think is basically gutter feed. And yet it's not. It's almost, I feel like horror, 
crystallizes and clarifies this sort of epic call to action more effectively even than action movies do, because so many of them need a contrived plot. Whereas these horror films, these slashers, Halloween specifically, it is literally just good versus evil. What is sort of one of the great big heroic texts of, you know, the Western canon, which is, I mean, it's Beowulf, you know, Beowulf versus Grendel. And I mean, it's easy to, you can easily interpret that as like a horror story. Now, the other thing I'd love to talk about as far as Loomis goes before we maybe move on a little bit with a different part of the discussion is do you read anything into not just his evolution and personality and mindset through the films, but also the visual evolution of the character? Thinking about Halloween, Uh, the night at the hospital, the burn scars, you know, go ahead. I cut you off there while I was finishing the point, but I think you see where I'm going with this. Yeah, his visual evolution. Yeah, he, you know, he starts out as like a, you know, like a pretty dapper, balding Donald Pleasance, and then he... He gets these scars. He's basically as mangled. It's like a sort of reflection of Michael Myers, because obviously Michael Myers is going to be scarred too, even though he doesn't look that charred up. He doesn't look very crispy. Um, but yeah, it, it's just sort of a reflection of that. And like the fact that he was basically in Halloween 2 he realized the enormity of his former patient and that he, the only way to like properly kill him, to send him to hell is by sacrificing himself. And ultimately that's a sacrifice he has to make multiple times first in the hospital in Halloween two then attempting to sacrifice himself in four and five before ultimately trying to sacrifice Michael's niece, or at least use her as bait to attempt to sacrifice himself yet again. Yeah. We see him really locked in this eternal struggle with the shape. Yeah, exactly. The good doctor versus the shape. So I, I guess I've maybe gushed about his character for long. Enough <laughs> We've been on that for seven minutes, but genuinely Dr. Sam Loomis might be my favorite character period in film history. I'm just enamored with him. The concept, his arc, his evolution, love him. Which I think also serves as a useful transition. We'll see how you feel about this. I absolutely hated what the Rob Zombie uh, reorientations, perspectives, remakes did with Dr. Loomis, and I really did not care for them at all. Yeah, I mean, they're, they feel, I mean, I enjoy them for what they are, which is pretty gnarly slasher flicks. Like, I think Rob Zombie has a talent at making death just look and feel really nasty. And so, you know, I, I'll, I'll give him tip of the hat for that. Um, but yeah, they didn't have any real, they don't have the Halloween vibe, you know. Like I said, you know, I can enjoy them for 
what they are, but you know, they don't, they're not like Halloween flicks to me. And what about the most recent ones they've released where Jamie is a paranoid adult, a grandmother, and she's been dreading his return this whole time. They retcon out the relation saying that that was an urban legend after her survival the first time, but now he's back and he's still hunting her and her family for reasons that at that point actually become inexplicable. I thought it was a weird story beat. I kind of understood why they were trying to do it that way to create a clear break and do their own thing with the franchise. But I wasn't really feeling it. Where are you at on the newest entries? I enjoyed the new ones a lot. I I mean, I understood the sort of desire to just completely cut the sibling ties um, and make Michael more of like a random force of nature. And I mean, I think to me it makes a bit more sense because the only way he's able to get to uh, the house at the end is uh, because of the Dr. Sartan guy who's sort of the evil Loomis. Um, and so that made sense. I mean, I do really like Halloween Kills because it's sort of just like the ultimate slasher flick. I mean, if you want like 90 minutes of Michael Myers killing people, like that's probably one of the best, you know, entries you can go to. Um Halloween ends was interesting. I think it it's going to sort of rise. Maybe it'll become more appreciated in a few years. Um, the way people have started to appreciate Halloween three more. Um, but I mean, it did feel like a weird way to end this new trilogy. Um, but you know, there were definitely parts of it that I enjoyed. Well, and it was a very weird way to end things Yeah, with him <laughs> essentially what hack and slashing his way out of the middle of a lynch mob. It felt like it was trying to create some sort of hero pivot for him. I thought they were trying to do a sort of man is the real monster thing, which didn't. Make oh, yeah. Sense like all the me. evil dice tonight. Yeah. Yeah. That stuff got a little old, but, you know. What are you going to do? <laughs> well, I, I don't know what I'm going to do because it drove me up a wall. Like you're trying to portray these people as some sort of horrible lynch mob. But what they're trying to do is destroy evil incarnate. Why are we making this about a mob mentality, runaway riot sort of thing? Like they're totally justified in what they're doing here. Yeah, it's kind of, it's, and maybe this is what you said, but yeah, it's, it's kind of funny how, the whole thing is about like, oh, mom mentality is bad. But then you realize it's like, well, in this example, they're like going after literal pure evil. So maybe cut them some slack, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly <laughs> what I was driving at there. I suppose the thing now would be to ask if you have any thoughts on some of the more one-off entries uh, where they tried to put Jamie Lee Curtis as the headmistress of a boarding school. <laughs> oh yeah, Halloween H two O. Um, man, I don't like that one. I think you know there are some cool parts, but it is way too. It's way too post screen, kind of like 
that late nineties, like I know what you did last summer, urban legend. It's very Kevin Williamson. Um, and like Michael doesn't move like Michael. He moves like someone cosplaying as Michael. Um, yeah, I don't really care for that one. Like I thought that I thought Jamie Lee Curtis in that one is a little more believable than her and the new trilogy where she's all like sort of like Sarah Connor style. But um, like, you know, the, the movie sort of it falls flat to me. Then I believe there was another one-off entry where they're trying to do a live online (laughs) web show within the Myers house. Oh yeah. Halloween resurrection. Well, that one, that one is terrible, but you know, I think my attitude is, you know, every generation gets the Halloween movie that it deserves. And I feel like that was a great example of like, you know, that was like during the whole boom of like, there was that like movie like fear.com or whatever. And like some other like scary internet movies, um, from like the early two thousands. And yeah, it's, it's goofy. The mask is terrible and it's, it's definitely not one that I would put on. No, but I'll give it this. The Kung Fu fight in a yeah. garage at the end was pretty <laughs> sick, though, huh? Oh, yeah. Buster Rhymes going, look, looking crispy there, Michael motherfucker, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. Oh. I guess uh, there's not really a whole lot of other entries to cover. The only one of them, well, well there we haven't really talked about. Well, there, there is one. Please go ahead. Sorry, you go ahead. Cutting you off. Go ahead, man. Uh, well, there is part six, um, which of course the big thing with part six is the theatrical versus the producer's cut, and I find that one pretty interesting. I think it's like an interesting encapsulation of like kind of like the weird like mid nineties like death education, like proto columbine kind of stuff and like you have like i don't know like it's it's an interesting vibe that's for sure and like the whole thing with like the cult of thorn operating inside the sanitarium so it's kind of like a it's almost like an indictment on the whole profession and just sort of like a sense that like well maybe maybe Michael's time in like Smith's Grove. I mean, obviously that's what it they're arguing in a way like Michael's time in Smith's Grove is what drove him to be a killer. Um, I think it's, it's definitely not, it's definitely Michael at his meanest. Um, but overall, yeah, it's a, you can, you can tell it's, uh, it was sort of like the end of the road and, terms of that kind of whole arc what do you think of part six that is exactly the one i was about to bring up so i suppose it's all right that we waltzed around each other there for a second yeah (laughs) i i liked that they made explicit the cult of thorn angle finally after they sort of alluded to it through four and five they finally made it real um i am with you that i think that there might have been some attempt to do commentary 
on mental health and on the state of sanitariums. And at that point, by the time it was released, it would have been a sort of look back on them. As in American culture, we were finally first starting to hear about just how horrific those places were. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it... It didn't do it for me because I didn't get enough of my man Loomis. He wasn't really around there. But at the same time, I kind of dug it. I liked the return. I liked the childhood friend being one of the heroes throughout it. But there was a lot of stuff that was just a little off. I think it was a worthy entry, but it's for me, it's the sort of the deal. It's one of those sequels that came just a little too late and was just a little too offbeat but it still belongs. It's still part of the whole. Yeah. The, the placement of it is interesting because it, it plays itself so seriously when it had to, it, I think it came out like the year before scream. And so you have like Paul Rudd as Tommy Doyle grown up and sort of being this like almost conspiracy theorist kind of dude. Um, and you, you know, because it's Paul Rudd, you expect him to be like wisecracking and stuff, but it's complete, it's played completely straight. And so it's kind of like, there's, there's a charm to that. Like before, you know, the screamification, which I'm not saying that it is as a disparagement. I love scream, but like, there is definitely more after, after scream came out, all the slasher movies were a lot more sort of like knowing and winking. Um, so if I can just comment on that note real quick, that's yeah, one of the it. things I was trying to allude to in the beginning, Wes Craven was able to make scream and get away with it because he's Wes Craven. The fact that everyone else tried to do that after him was the worst thing that could happen to slashers and even horror more broadly in the entire history of the genre. You know, yeah, Wes Craven gets to do that sort of thing because he knows exactly what he's doing. The rest of these guys are yeah, it's know, like let, playing let, let, in the ruins <laughs> of a fallen civilization trying to imitate him. Yeah, it's the kind of thing where it's like, let the master cook and uh, you can just sit back and enjoy the dish, but don't try to repeat it or something. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that is something that's still tarnishing slashers actually to this day. Uh, maybe not that exact phenomena, but I think Scream, whether, it, well, it obviously didn't intend to, but I think Scream was kind of the death knell of slashers because everyone wanted to be Scream and nobody could. Yeah, it's like in a lot of ways, Scream should have been the last slasher movie. Because it was like the sort of the ultimate kind of commentary on it. And yeah, now it's like they're all too knowing. There's, you know, it's like they all have the kind of like Joss Whedon effect in a lot of ways. And some of them are fun, but there's there's hardly any. Like that was, you know, for here's something that I did not like at all about the new Halloween trilogy is it's, you can definitely tell the lines that were written by Danny McBride because like inserted, try to insert too much sort of non sequitur humor into the script. And it just fell flat. Like I want, you know, I want my slashers to be mean. I want them to be cheesy and I want them to be sleazy. Like if there's, if humor happens, cause there's some, you know, some of the dialogue and, uh, the original Halloween is funny, 
um, like the interactions between like Linda and Annie and uh, Lori are funny, but like they're not funny in this like sort of deliberate like, oh, yeah, I'm going to put a funny line in here. Yeah, yeah, there's lines where like, yeah, and he wants to take you to the dance or he wants to ask you out. Yeah. And there's there's just that exactly sort. It feels like authentic teenage humor as opposed to some hack writer throwing stuff in because he thinks he can get a cheap giggle out of an audience that's willing to eat slop, frankly. Exactly. So we've got one more entry to cover. It is the one that is the most unrelated because it's not even a Michael Myers movie. Yeah. Where are you at on season of the witch? You said earlier, it's beginning to enjoy a Renaissance and it definitely is. But how have you felt about it this whole time yourself? I've always liked it. I, um, no, I don't remember the first time I watched it, but like I, you know, I always knew that it didn't involve Michael Myers. Um, you know, I think there's like a line that maybe John Carpenter says, or someone else says where, you know, if, you know, the first two Halloween movies were knife movies, this is a pod movie. And, uh, I always, I guess I always enjoyed it on its own terms. Like there's definitely some very like sort of unsettling stuff, like the way the, you know, the masks sort of like deteriorate onto the kids' heads and it's like an eruption of insects and like uh, uh, snakes and stuff. That's definitely unsettling. Um, and like then there's that one part where the lady is like fiddling with the silver shamrock medallion and like it like blasts out like a laser that like mutilates her fucking face. That's pretty gnarly. Um, I mean, definitely some plot holes and stuff like any sort of good horror movie from the eighties, but I've always enjoyed it for what it is. Yeah. I think that's more or less where I'm at on that one too. It needs to be enjoyed as its own thing because it truly is its own thing. There's no making it fit with everything else and you shouldn't try. I think maybe that's why a lot of people were turned off on it for so long before it started to get its sort of second life now as people are starting to watch it again and appreciate it again in places and in forums where this stuff is discussed, obviously. Yeah, for sure. Well, cause it's like, you know, everyone wanted more, uh, Michael Myers. They wanted, you know, stick to the formula as Mike love says about, uh, beach boys, um, and that's what, you know, thankfully we got Halloween four from that, but at the time people weren't really feeling it, but yeah, people have definitely been gravitating towards, uh, Halloween three a lot more. And I feel like it's also, you know, even though it's not related, relate, like explicitly related to, uh, you know, the, Michael Myers storyline, it definitely sort of like fleshes out the lore in a lot of ways. You know, if you want to do some like headcanon stuff about it, where it's, it's just this sense of Halloween or Samhain, or as they say in, as they pronounce it in Halloween too, Sam Hain, 
Um, just the sense that it's this, uh, it's this holiday of evil, you know, where the ghouls come out at night. And I feel like it's sort of a great illustration of that. And like, I think another good example of that is like in Halloween two, when like the mom is bringing her kid in and like, you see the shot with like the razor blade in the apple or like the razor blade in his mouth because he bit into the apple. Um, yeah, man. Yeah. yeah. It's like you get like that moment and then like the preacher moment in Halloween four. And then the moment in the original Halloween where the, the, uh, the, I don't know the the keeper of the, uh, cemetery. I don't know the groundskeeper of the cemetery is talking, you know, going on about like Charlie Bowles in a Russellville. He took a hacksaw and then, and then it gets interrupted by Dr. Loomis. Like all of these moments are underlined by Halloween three in a way, because it all suggests that, yeah, uh, you know, the shape is this, the evil that is central to the narrative that you're watching to this narrative but there are other examples of like evil and perversity occurring during this holiday. I could not have said that better myself. Now, if you'll permit me to throw one last question here at you, one last thing to riff on for a couple minutes before we wrap, Go are for there it. any slashers out there today that give you a hope that this sort of subgenre can come back and can enjoy a little bit of a renaissance? A genre, let's see. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think I, I know a lot of people were really into Terrifier too, but I never watched it. Um, I appreciate, you know, its ambition and scope and stuff. But <clears throat> other than that, I'm not sure. I think the issue with the slasher genre nowadays. And I think sort of low budget horror in like sort of a lot of ways now is they're almost too easy to make, if that makes sense. And this has been an old uh, Joe Bob Briggs kind of line where, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, even though, you know, these movies were schlock, they were made by people who, you know, necessarily had to do know how to do lighting know how to do editing with actual celluloid, know all this stuff that takes actual craftsmanship. But uh, nowadays, you know, anyone can really like make something on like film, something on like a smartphone or whatever. And so that sort of sense of craftsmanship is lost. So, you know, I'm trying, I'm trying to, you know, end it on a hopeful note, but and hopefully maybe maybe you you have some examples and if you do i would love to hear them but i haven't seen anything recently that has given me that hope so i have not seen anything that really compares to the masters of yesteryear but there's two recently that have sort of riffed a little bit on the slasher theme and I think hit the right beats, the right story arcs for what a slasher is supposed to be. That made me feel like maybe someone somewhere gets it. And that is the Vince Vaughn body swap slasher freaky. Did you see that one? I did not, but I heard good things. And 
I think it's directed by the same dude who did uh, Happy Death Day, which that was actually a pretty good one. And Happy Death Day absolutely was going to be my other one. So those two are really giving me hope that maybe there is still a future yet for slasher films. There's something to them, and I'm very excited, especially if they keep on working with that same formula. It's not the same as Craven. It's not the same as Carpenter, but it is what a slasher is supposed to be, and I really appreciated that about both of those films. Absolutely. And the great thing about them, like the great thing about Happy Death Day is, you know, it was PG-13, which, you know, as like a hardcore slasher fan, you're like, oh, what? No blood and stuff. You know, there's got to be a, you know, there's got to be an entry level flick, you know, for, cause for like, you know, the teens and stuff. So it's like, if there's like, you know, some grade schooler or high schooler or whatever, who sees a PG 13 slasher flick, and then that opens them up to like the wider world of slasher movies of the seventies and eighties. That's not something that I'm going to denigrate. Yes, absolutely, man. Well, I think this is as good a place as any to call it. Uh, Thank you very much. If you want to give me your shills one more time, anything you want to promote, we will get out of here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, man. It was a fun time. Um, Yeah, uh, Apocalypse Confidential. Uh, Follow us on Twitter at Apcon underscore mag and or Instagram at Apocalypse underscore confidential. Um, check us out at apocalypse-confidential.com. We'll be dropping our Bad Back Jack Thanksgiving Spectacular on November 22nd, of course. And we there's still time to uh, submit to it. The deadline is November 8th. And for my own purposes, can you tell me just real quick where the submission should be sent to? Uh, submission should be sent to contact at apocalypse-confidential.com. Good deal, man. Thank you again so much, Jacob. This was an absolute blast. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much, dude.